This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. I hope you're well as we are slowly but surely getting back into the world as we knew it pre-COVID. Looking forward to getting out and doing some things this weekend, and I hope you are as well. Today's conversation on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is with Regina Graziani. Regina is an attorney by education and training, but she's a mentor by passion. She loves nothing more, that is, if you don't count calorie-free ice cream, than assisting learners in successfully transitioning into the legal profession and reaching their professional goals. She's an advocate of and has extensive experience with paralegals and paralegal students, which is why she was chosen for her current role as program director of the Paralegal Studies Program at the University of Hartford. She regularly presents on topics of interest to paralegals and attorneys both locally and nationally. And she's also a proponent of doing something that is difficult, challenging, and outside your comfort zone every single day. You're going to hear the word advocate a lot in this episode. And as I'm listening back to it and thinking about it, I'm increasingly feeling that word might actually be inadequate to describe the support that Regina provides both for her students, but also as you're going to hear for her daughter, because we spend a lot of time talking about her and her story. But whatever term you use, Regina provides a real great example for all of us about the importance of believing in yourself, of not just accepting outside limitations when someone attempts to impose them upon you, the importance of stretching yourself, and the importance of having support when you do so, and why we have to have the right perspective, whether it's about failure or obstacles or anything, if we want to be able to persist stand up for ourselves and succeed. And now here's my conversation with Regina. I'm going to jump right in with my, my favorite question, which is what are you rebelling against? I didn't think I was rebelling against anything until I started talking with you. And then I realized that the thing that I've rebelled against most is ceilings, limitations, whether imposed by ourselves or other people. And when I look back at the things that I've been struggling with or fighting against, that's the common denominator. Now, is this a lifelong thing, a more recent thing? Where does this originate? As you ask me that question, my initial just knee-jerk reaction is, it's probably been recent. But when I start to unfold and think about it, I think it's been a lifelong action of mine. I think, you know, as, as we grow up, there are always challenges. I was a very quiet child. And as a quiet child, you get put in a box. And I was teased a lot. And there was a point, my, neither of my parents went to college and they wanted an education for me more than anything else. And they sacrificed a great deal so I could have an education. And I think the turning point of this rebellion was when my father brought me to a friend of his who was a professor at uh, a law school. And his idea was, she knows what she's talking about. 
She can help Regina. She can guide her. She can tell her. And I was still in college. And the woman, very well respected, she's deceased now, looked at me. We were sitting at her dining room table having dessert and tea and said, you're not law school material. You didn't graduate from an Ivy League school. You should probably think about something else. And my father was devastated. His father, as an immigrant, didn't believe in education, believed in getting out, making money. So he didn't have the opportunity to go to college. My mom was brought up very poor and college just wasn't an option. So for neither one of them, for different reasons, they weren't able to pursue this. And they knew for me to have the American dream, I would need an education. And my dad always told me, I don't care if you ever practice law, but you will have that degree. And that comes with respect and no one can ever take that away from you. So it was really important. He didn't care if I was ever going to practice, but he wanted me to have that respect built in that I was a lawyer. And as we left her home, my dad just sat in the car, devastated, slumped over. I was driving. And I remember looking at him and saying, excuse my language, this is the lawyer language, fuck you, I'm going to law school. And I think that's where it started, that don't tell me what I can or cannot do based on a preconceived notion of what a law student should be. And fast forward a little bit, I went to law school. I was accepted to a, a very good law school. I went, graduated, passed the bar, and became an attorney. And the first thing that I did when I got my first acceptance letter to a law school was bring it to my dad and said, yeah, I'll show her. So I think if there was a pivotal moment in my life, that was it. That someone told me in a big way, you can't do this little girl. Just be happy with a bachelor's degree and go work in some office. I have a couple of questions here. One is, did you go show her your acceptance letter? No, I didn't. I think that was the demure part of my upbringing that nice ladies didn't do that. But I think my dad may have called her and told her. I would have been really tempted to, I don't know, mail her 50 copies of it or something, probably. If it was today, if this happened today, I would have walked, maybe last year since most campuses are closed down, uh, presuming she was still alive, I would have marched myself right on to her campus and into her office. And as a scene, what comes to mind is that scene in Pretty Woman where she comes back in with all those bags and you, you didn't want to wait on me, right? Mistake. Big mistake. That's what comes to mind. You didn't think I was going to get into law school? Mistake. I'm at a better law school than you're working at. That's the petty side of me, but... Actually, I don't think that's petty as much as it's a thing of standing up for oneself after the fact, right? It's like, you know what? You didn't believe in me and you were wrong. I did believe in me and check this out. Now, going back to this event, this person who is uh, allegedly an expert and would know such things says to you, yeah, you're not law school material. And what do you think it was about that statement and that moment that triggered this, oh yeah, watch this sort of reaction for you? Because I was always underestimated because I was quiet. I think quiet, shy people tend to be ignored or overlooked. And I think also my parents worked really hard and sacrificed a lot 
so I could have a, a good college education. And the importance to my father of me having something that he didn't have was a, a motivating factor that I wasn't going to embarrass my parents. I wasn't going to let them down. I think it was as much their dream as it was mine, that while they did very well for themselves, they struggled horrifically. They didn't want that for me. So, I wasn't only achieving something for me, it was for my parents as well. And it just was too important to let go. Knowing some parts of what has come since then for you, it's easy for me to look at this moment and go, oh, here's the beginning of Regina, the person who is standing up, not just for herself, but for others, for people who aren't given enough respect. This feels like maybe where that began. I don't know. I think it did. David Goggins is one of my favorite people, and he talks about going through adversity and those hard moments become cookies in our cookie jar. That when we're going through more hard moments, we pull those out and we look at them and say, we got through this so I can get through this other struggle. And I think that it has been a cookie that I've pulled out that if you were able to do that when people didn't think that you could, then why can't you do this? And it's, it is a, it's a mindset. For sure. Nothing I've ever thought about consciously. Now that I'm reflecting on it, I, I see how pieces come together, but it was nothing that I ever thought about. Now, when you got this acceptance letter, Tell me about what that experience was like and what feelings and thoughts you experienced when you got it and opened it up. In those days, you would get envelopes in the mail. And just like with undergraduate, you get a thick envelope or you get a thin envelope. I got a thick envelope and I opened it and got through the first congratulations, were ecstatic, happy, whatever, to welcome to the class of whatever. I felt vindicated. I knew I was going to go to law school, and it was the, yeah, I was right. It reaffirmed my belief in myself that I read myself right. I studied really hard in school. I sacrificed a lot because I didn't want to embarrass my parents. I didn't want to let them down. So school was my job. I studied really hard. I did everything that I possibly could do to put myself in the best position to get into the law schools that I wanted to. I did extracurricular things, student government. I was an RA. Just everything that I could possibly do and studied really hard, graduated in the top 10 of my class. And I knew with checking those boxes and I had a really good LSAT score, why wouldn't I be accepted? It didn't matter that I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a good college. I had excellent grades. I had other good credentials and my LSATs were really high. And it just felt that, yeah, this is going to happen. And when my dad uh, came home, I showed him that and it was exciting. And my mom, same thing. She was home and she just looked at me and said, I knew you could do it. And she was always my biggest um, cheerleader and advocate. So it sounds like even though you had this one naysayer about you going to law school, that really your parents were very much a source of support and encouragement and belief in you. Absolutely. But their support versus 
the expert. Just because mom and dad say, you're fabulous, you're a great singer, a great dancer, doesn't mean you're going to end up on Broadway. You could really stink, but mom and dad always think you're great. So that's, yeah, doesn't really count. And it was a big, it was a big hit to be told by someone who should know that you really, you might want to think about doing something else. That was someone I respected, my dad respected, and I thought I should respect because of her credentials. Yeah. And our parents, loving and supportive and encouraging as they can be, they're also maybe a little biased at times, just a, just a teeny bit, and, and understandably so. So that must have been a really fabulous moment, though, for you, one, to have achieved that and proven that to yourself, but also to be able to share it with them. That's really cool. And I'll also say that I don't know that going to an Ivy League school has anything to do with law school, as says this Ivy League graduate who never could have gotten into law school because I barely graduated. And I was lucky I got into grad school for psychology. So whatever. <laughs> Tell me about the experience of going to law school and doing this, right? So you get told you can't, you're not law school material. And you're like, oh yeah, watch this. Well, here I got in, but then you've got to actually do the work. Yes. And so tell me about what that was like for you. That was a very different experience. Law school was something that I don't think I was really prepared for. From K through 12, went to a very small school. My senior class, there were 12 of us who graduated. Wow, that's tiny. Very small. Socratic method. I never had multiple choice exams. You couldn't hide in, a, in that classroom. Same thing with college. It was a smaller college, but very good, hard with academics, very small classes, especially in the major. There were maybe 15 of us in, in the major. So again, you can't hide. Go to law school. There are 200, 200 of you sitting in a classroom and you're looking around and nobody really knows your name. The professors don't know your name, at least at, at that point in time. I think our law school education has changed since I was in law school. And the professor just look down a roster and say, Miss Graziani, please stand up and tell me about whatever. And that was terrifying. And I was looking around and it was the best of the best. They were all my peers. I had been a big fish in a small pond and here were the same big fish and we were all in the same pond. Even though we had different interests, we were all vying essentially for the same pieces. And after a while, you, you find your stride and you figure out what you want to do and where you want to go and how you want to do it. And law school was a great experience because I met some really amazing people, learned uh, a lot about how to study differently, how to be an advocate, wonderful professors, my advocacy classes, the circuit court judges and justices, and the opportunity to go from being a very shy girl who, one of my high school teachers who was my advisor, he was afraid to talk to me sometimes because he was afraid I was going to cry. He didn't want to critique my artwork because I was so shy. He thought I was he would put me into tears to go from that to having to stand up literally in front of a hundred people and talk about some case and then argue fact patterns for an advocacy class doing moot court and just learning how to be comfortable while being uncomfortable, because I just was a shy, quiet person. And it was it was a challenge to learn how to 
verbally be an advocate for someone. I could do it through written word. That was no problem. But to stand up and look at a bench full of justices and argue for a client, but that was the most wonderful thing. Uh, That was the place to do it. Now, listening to this and thinking about what you're saying here about going from being, again, big fish in a small pond, but also a fish who was a quiet, shy fish. So coming back to that, it's not like you were going to a large school where you could disappear when, you know, when you were young elementary, middle and high school and such. So what was that experience like for you of being a quiet, shy, more introverted person in such a small environment? How'd you deal with that? In the small environment, it was safe because these were kids I went to school with, some of them from nursery school. So I knew everybody. We lived in the same community. Our families were friends. So it was safe. We knew each other. And there there was really no problem for me. I was quiet, but I wasn't one of those freaky quiet kids. I was, I played varsity sports. I was involved in the drama club and student government. We began a student government in high school and I was the one behind it. But for me to stand up in front of a lot of people as Regina was difficult. Acting in a play, I could assume the role of whoever it was. And that was fine. There was a veil there. And I think to some degree, I did that in law school. And even when I started teaching, that was the trick that I used, that this is the role that you're playing. And you don't have to be afraid. You know your stuff. You know what you're talking about. So just go out and do it. And it'll be fine. But in a you know small school, it was easy because I knew all these people. We spent we would spend twenty four almost twenty four hours a day together. We'd go to school from seven thirty. Maybe a bunch of us would carpool together. So we might have breakfast first, go to school, then play sports afterwards. Then our one of our moms would pick us up, and depending on the night, we might all go to someone's house for dinner and have a sleepover, and then go home the next day. So. These were almost like siblings, and it was very safe. And, and nobody was competing against each other. In our in this particular school, we were very supportive of each other and wanted to see each other succeed, whereas law school, eh, not so much. It was a little more cutthroat. What I'm getting here is, yeah, this sounds like, as I'm hearing this, one, I'm jealous, but uh, two, I'm like, this okay. sounds like just this, because it sounds like just this extended sort of family or at least this community, this fairly closely knit community where everyone knows each other. And it's kind of like, you know, that's, that's Regina and she's a little quiet, but it's whatever. And everyone's kind of got their own things and it's no big deal. It's not something that gets highlighted or emphasized. It's like, everyone's just everyone the same way that we can do that. And often I find with these closed systems or more closed systems, there's a difference about how that works is like, there's almost a, um, not so much force, but there's a way in which there seems to sometimes be almost more acceptance of one's identity and individuality, as long as it's not ranging into problematic behaviors and such. So it's not just big fish, small pond, but it's this, it's like the family pond and it's a very nice, warm, nurturing pond. And then you go to law school where it is not that it's bigger, as you said, more cutthroat. And so 
I would imagine that probably required some adaptation and might have been a little bumpy for you in some ways, besides just the class piece. What about the social aspect of it? You're meeting a lot of people and sifting through. It's, it's, I don't think law school is any different than grad school or undergraduate. Everybody's in there and vying to see who, who the friend groups are going to be. And you talk to a lot of people and you're like, no, not, not really my type. And I would say in a few weeks, I found a friend group and we we're all very different. But we maintained friendships all through law school. And being an only child and being quiet, I didn't mind being alone and being quiet. So I found a lovely table in the lower level of the law library where I stayed most of the time. My first two years of law school, I had a roommate. We looked similar, but we were very different. Her third year superlative was most likely to be killed by her troops if she were a general. My (laughs) superlative was most likely to enter a convent. So we got along fine. We did moot court together, but just... (laughs) This feels like the plot from a movie. You can't make it up. People would get us confused once in a while, and we didn't think we looked alike. We were about the same height. Our hair was about the same color. We both wore glasses. But beyond that, I guess it was close enough. So I mostly stayed to myself. I had friends, but I wasn't a big social person. I was in the library studying, reading. Again, I was in law school, and I did not want to embarrass my parents. I did not want to let them down. This meant a lot to them. And at this point, my mom had passed away. I I felt it was honoring her memory. I I told her, I'm going to do this. You'll be proud of me. And I wanted my dad to be proud of me. I wanted him to be able to come to my graduation and see his daughter walk across the stage and get that degree. That was so important for him. It was important for me, but it carried so much more than just someone getting a law degree. There were students in my class. They were third-generation lawyers. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to grad school. I was the first person in my family to go to law school. So there was a lot that I was carrying willingly. So I just put my nose down and, and did what I was supposed to do. And that's the thing that I wanted to ask about, because I'm thinking about that, about first to go to college. And as long as we're going to go to college, let's do law school too. Yeah, why not? First to really do this. And with the real awareness of how much this meant to your father, some people would find that a real problematic sort of pressure. But what was your experience of that awareness of your position and the importance to your father and all of that? How did that impact Um, your not just approach to law school, but your experience of it and how you felt while you were doing this. I I get what you're saying. I work with a lot of students who have felt that pressure that you are going to be this person. He never imposed himself on me and said, you will be a lawyer and follow in my footsteps. Or he was a builder. He said, you will not be a builder and you will not follow in my footsteps. Because I understood his experience growing up as part of an immigrant family and experiencing forms of racism, there were things that his family couldn't do because they were Italian. They couldn't buy property in certain places. They weren't allowed to have certain jobs. So that weighed heavy on him. And I understood why it was important for him that I had something that would 
in society be something that would provide me with a degree of respect right out of the box. Forget about my last name. I have a law degree. I'm a lawyer. While he did well for himself, he was a very quiet, humble man. I think he was embarrassed a lot. He wasn't embarrassed by his heritage, but I think he was embarrassed by the experiences that he had. And he just always seemed like a broken person to me. He was the person who would go off in the corner and not say a word. So for me to get that degree, I never saw it as him telling me, this is what you're going to do. I understood what he wanted. He wanted something better for me. He wanted people to respect me. He never felt respected, never felt like he was worthy of much. Uh, his father was also a very powerful, physically powerful man. He looked like Khrushchev and you know, would bang tables and chase union organizers through the streets when they were trying to organize his men. So he wasn't that person, but he wanted me to have something more. So I understood why he wanted it. And I think the caveat of saying, I don't care if you ever practice law, that always gave me the out that I don't have to practice law. And I guess most of my career or about half of my career, I haven't actively practiced. I've done a little bit. I've used that degree for something else, but it was his way of trying to ensure that I had better status, perhaps, in society, that I had respect, that I wasn't going to be walked on, whether it be as a female in society or as a part of an immigrant experience. Whatever he had experienced, he wanted something different for me. He didn't want me to have limitations. It sounds like what was happening is you recognized he was trying to create an opportunity for you. Yes. To yes. be able to have something better because of the difficulties and challenges he had experienced. And this was your way of honoring and recognizing that in a sense and saying, thank you. Yes. And he was a very smart man. And I respected his wisdom and figured, here's one of two people in the world who love me unconditionally and would never do anything to hurt me and only want the best for me. He's got a lot more experience than I do. Maybe this guy's onto something. I should at least you know, listen. And it's not going to hurt me. It's education. So you go through law school and obviously graduate and, and pass the bar because one does not practice law, legally at least, without passing the bar. Correct. So, so tell me though about your experience of like getting through the end of law school and then how you went from there into your career. I practiced law for a number of years, not a large number. When I went to law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. That's all I wanted to be. There were no prosecutor jobs when I got out, even knowing the chief prosecutor in, in our state, there just were no jobs. So I looked around, found another niche, practiced in a boutique firm with a absolutely brilliant woman who she and I are still very close to this day. Amazing attorney, just brilliant, wonderful person. And while I was in practice with her, I decided that mm, I, I'm getting married. And once I got married, shortly thereafter, I was pregnant. And I, my husband and I at the time, decided that it would be appropriate for me. I was a litigator, so I was working a million hours. That having a baby and having that kind of lifestyle probably wasn't the best idea. So I was going to stay home. 
So I left that position and did some temping while I was pregnant and then had a baby. And turns out that she was born with some birth defects, some birth anomalies. And I spent, gosh, the better part of six years flying back and forth between our home in DC and going up to Boston to different doctors. And around that same time, I was losing my mind just sitting home doing nothing because all of my friends were working. I, I wasn't into garden club or you know stuff like that. I, I want to say I'm an academic, but I wanted to do something more than just sit around and go to doctor's offices. So there was a, a local college uh, career school that had a, a job opening to teach a law class. I thought one law class, that'll be fun. I can do this. I can juggle this with my schedule. So I applied. I, they interviewed me. I got the position. Within maybe three or so years, I was running the paralegal program. I'd been elevated to lead instructor. We would have instructors who just would quit in the middle of the night. They'd send, they'd fax over their resignation, and I come in the morning, and the uh, head of the the school would say, "So, how do you feel about teaching family law today at two? Excuse me. Oh, yeah, so and so quit last night. So, sure, no problem. I'll get sure, right no on problem. that. No problem. I know nothing about family law, but I can read the textbook and do some research and go with it. So I did that while I was spending uh, my free time uh, flying to uh, to different doctors with my daughter and being an advocate for her, essentially. And then, let's see, she was about six when the position at this university opened up for uh, program director of a paralegal studies program. I thought, hmm, that's the next step up. It's a bigger venue, more students, different opportunities. I applied and here I am. I'm curious why you wanted to be a prosecutor. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things in what you just said that I want to explore more, but <laughs> I don't want to forget that one. So yeah, what, what made you decide that I wanted to be a prosecutor? Because I don't really equate this kind of quiet, shy, obviously very intellectually interested and engaged person, but I don't think prosecutor immediately. So tell me about that. Maybe Perry Mason had something to do, although he was a defense attorney. I think I... From a, a very early age, I had a, a very strong sense of right and wrong. Maybe that's my Catholic upbringing. Maybe that's the way I was brought up, but a very strict sense of what's right and what's wrong. And if you do harm, you deserve to be punished. That seemed like a great way to go. And what I had a great opportunity when I was in law school to be an intern with our state's attorney's office. And I got to work on a capital felony case, which was amazing. That's the first case as a not quite lawyer that I got to work on. It was a drug case. It was a shooting in Hartford, and it was amazing to work on. And that was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. This man killed somebody else. He deserves to be punished. There is this very strong sense for you of, of I don't even know if right and wrong is so much. It, it feels almost like a justice sort of thing yeah. or addressing yes. injustice. Yes. So I could certainly see in that case how this is something that would speak to you. But what else about that experience? You described it as great and it's... It sounds like such an intense and maybe kind of scary thing for someone like me. Like, wow, that seems just like over the top, but obviously not for you. So tell me about that and what it was about it that you were so fired up about. 
I think I was fired up because there aren't a lot of capital. Connecticut no longer has the death penalty. But at that time, even having the death penalty, there weren't a lot of those cases kicking around. So the opportunity to work with two very seasoned prosecutors on a capital felony case was amazing. Both of the attorneys I worked with had brilliant careers, were very thoughtful, were contemplative. They weren't yahoos. They took very seriously their oath and their obligation. So to cut my legal teeth with them on this particular matter was great. And it exposed me to the system in a way that a textbook or classroom doesn't. You you learn about different things in school, whether it's high school, college, law school, whatever. Here it was rolling out. Here we're doing voir dire of potential jurors. How do you find jurors who are going to be fair and impartial on on a matter that most of us, if I threw you the fact pattern, you'd be like, lock him up, throw away the key, or stick a needle in his arm and have him be done. How do we find within our society men and women who say, yep, I will suspend by personal views to listen to what the evidence shows with the state and with the prosecution and the the defense attorneys are going to show and I will follow the rules that the judge is going to give me on the elements that are necessary to convict this gentleman of these charges. I have no background in psychology or sociology, but it was fascinating watching that and then seeing the evidence come in. And while I was working on that case, there are other cases that they're coming through felonies. And we'd sit around the lunch table and detectives and other prosecutors would bring in crime scene photos from cases they were working on as we're chomping on a salad or eating a sandwich, looking at bullet hole trajectories in in bodies or blood splatter in rooms. So all of this was a new world of things that I'd never experienced. I grew up in the suburbs, very safe. These were things that I never experienced in my life, although I knew the locations. Every case that we were working on, I knew where these places were. I'd driven down those streets and there's another side to that community. But again, it was justice. You look at the victims and it's not the ending that they deserve. They may have been criminals, but did they deserve to get their brains blown out at point blank range while they were sitting in the car eating a slice of pizza? Uh, that doesn't bode well for a civilized society. As citizens in a civilized society, we want safety. We want security. We want to know that we can walk around on our streets and be safe from bad things happening. So there's a whole bunch of that wrapped up in that experience. There's two things that are jumping out to me. One is getting this experience of actually being connected to the actual process of practicing law, because like any field like that, grad school is whatever it is. But one thing it is not is anything like the actual practice of the thing. It doesn't matter what field we're talking about. And clearly law is, is no exception. And I know that from other attorneys I've spoken to as well. But then again, we have this connection to this justice theme here, right? Here's this thing where seeing that and seeing the mechanisms of it. And I'm guessing, because I think a lot of people would really have struggled with the the other elements of these sorts of cases, the violence, the in some cases, the gore, the just really disturbing, frightening stories, and really seeing some of the darker aspects of humanity. 
but it sounds like that's not the part that really stood out to you. Maybe it's the the logical side of my brain that kicks in. I tend not to be overly emotional, and I've been told that you really should get and let your emotions out a little bit more. But I tend to flip completely into my logic brain. Here's what the problem is. How do we solve it? That's what I did for so many years with my daughter being her advocate. One of the surgeries my daughter had, they cut her ear to ear and pulled her face down so they could fix an anomaly that she had. And my husband, I thought, was going to keel over and pass out. And when we were talking with the surgeon, my response was, can I come watch? Because I was fascinated by that. And I think in my role as an attorney, I suspend my personal feelings and emotions and just work with my thinking brain. I may do that a little too much, but maybe that's the sensitive, maybe that's the sensitive side that I need to get in touch with a little more. It does sound like there's a very real compartmentalization that happens for you, perhaps, which I, I think is not inherently a bad thing, to be clear. Because what I'm hearing is, yeah, in these certain cases, there's these things that you're able to set aside certain, at least, aspects of feelings or, or such. But at the same time, when we look at this, like we look at this surgery for your daughter on the one hand, yeah, that's a disturbing visual, certainly. And I think a lot of people would have been like, I no thanks, I don't want to see that. But I also know for you, because we hear how much time and energy and effort you put in to advocate for your daughter, to support her, that's an emotional drive. So it's there. Yes, because she's my daughter and anybody who knows me and knows her knows that I will do anything for her. However, to be a good advocate for her, I have to think things through and not respond emotionally, which was my husband's job. He was the emotional one. He was the one who would sit and cry and become overwhelmed. And I guess, and I don't know where this piece comes from because I didn't have a traumatic childhood. I had a great childhood, but the necessity to think through times of struggle I'm probably better in crisis than I am when there's no crisis, because when the shit's hitting the fan, I'm doubling down and I am have laser focus on what I'm doing. I don't know where that comes from, but absolutely the foundation of being able to be her advocate is emotion, that she's my child and just as my parents would do anything that, that they could for me, that's my job as a parent is to do whatever is possible to give my daughter a better life and a better experience than she otherwise would have. It seems like somewhere along the way, whether it's an inherent thing or whether it's something you learned or adapted or whatever, but you've got this ability to carry these feelings in a sense that, again, they, they produce this tremendous drive, but to action them in a way that, as you said, is really oriented around logic and around what is more workable, which makes a lot more sense. That's you know, obviously a lot more of an effective and intelligent way of doing things. But it does seem that, yeah, you have the ability to have both of these parts of you work in tandem but it sounds like something that to you is almost a kind of, that's just who you are, how you've been, not necessarily a thing that you had to say, develop or evolve. Correct. 
Do you think that's something that you might have picked up from observing, say, your father or other people you grew up around? It may have been a response because I said my dad was a wonderful man. He was a saint. People walked on him. He put us in bad financial positions because he was trying to help people out. And maybe subconsciously, there was a reaction to that. That's not how I want to be. On the flip side, my mom was uh, a person who she could walk into a room and everybody would turn around and she could work that room with, she had a, a velvet paw. She was wonderful. She should have been a politician, but she had too much passion. But at the same time, she was my advocate. And she, there were two instances in my lifetime where there was no doubt that she would have done whatever she needed to do. When I was in middle school, there was a boy who was a little bit, He was, I think I was in seventh grade and he was in eighth grade and he was picking on me all the time. And he was much bigger. And she, because it was a small school, she knew who he was. And one day I came out of the school and I, she was 5'3", and this guy was maybe, I don't know, 5'10", 6 feet at that point. She had him jacked up against the side of the building, telling him to leave her daughter alone, or he'd be in a lot of trouble. She was this little tiny thing. And he was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. He was my best friend after that. And then there was a situation when I was a freshman. They were freshmen in in college or my senior year in high school. I was dating a a guy who was not, um, my parents did not like him and with good reason. And there was a situation where we had been out and he came to the house three or four times while we were gone. We got home like eight o'clock at night. He shows up on the doorstep demanding to know where I've been all day. And, And this was before cell phones. And was I with somebody else and blah, 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 blah. We were standing in the living room. My mom walked from the family room through the kitchen, grabbed a knife. And this guy was a nationally ranked kickboxer. 6'2", my mom again, 5'3", maybe had heels on, make her 5'4". I'm standing in a living room with off-white covering and off-white carpeting. And she grabbed a knife off the counter. It was a, a cake knife, but it was, it was a long knife. She walked in to the room where he was yelling at me, put the knife to his throat and said, get the hell out of here before I kill you. Don't you ever talk to my daughter like that. The only thought that was going through my mind was, how am I going to get blood out of white carpeting? That was the only, because it it wasn't a matter of if she was going to do it. There was no doubt in my mind that she would have done it. And the only thought was, how do I get blood out of off-white carpeting, off-white wallpaper? This is going to be bad. There was not a doubt in my mind. So, whether I was more like her or a reaction to my dad being a very kind and very gentle person, well, then we can throw another thing in. You know, we want to go to the woo-woo side. I saw a parapsychologist once, and she said, in a past life, you were a Roman soldier. So then there's that piece too. So I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And and of course, all of these things are always to some degree a guessing game anyway. Let's let's be, let's be, be fair about this. But at the same time, I am, one of the things I'm struck by though, is the intensity is really the word that comes up for me as I'm listening to these stories about your mom, especially when you get somebody who is 
short, 5'3", and it just suddenly she's got this knife that's probably as big as her head up against this guy's throat. It's like, whoa. But you also see how deliberate application of power in the right moments in the right ways can also be very effective because <laughs> I'm sure he probably didn't mess with you after that. No, he didn't. He didn't. We broke up shortly after that. Not surprising. <laughs> Not surprising. All right. So I'm going to jump back ahead now to where we were before I last jumped backwards. Okay. So you get this position and tell me about that work and how things proceeded for you career-wise from there. I love this position. I'm the director of the oldest paralegal program in our state. We were the first ABA-approved program in our state. We work primarily with adult learners. So the students I see are students who started college perhaps 20 years ago. Maybe they dropped out. Maybe they flunked out. Maybe they got married. For whatever reason, they stopped. And now they're coming back. I also work with a lot of first-generation students, the first ones, like myself, to come to college. And they're scared. They don't know what to do. They don't know what this college thing is about. It seems like everybody around them knows what they're supposed to do because their parents are telling them, oh, this is what we do. And they don't have that experience. So I am so blessed to work with students who are driven to complete a degree, or they may already have a degree. We have a certificate as well, but they want something more so they may have a degree in English or engineering or whatever, and they want to enter the, the legal field, whether it's as a paralegal or ultimately becoming an attorney, and they are here. So they're a wonderful group who are driven, they're smart, they're focused, and just wonderful to work with. Tell me some more about these folks and, and like their characteristics and what makes them so enjoyable for you to be working with and supporting. Clearly, it has a lot of meaning for you. So tell me about what it is about it that brings that meaning out. Yeah, absolutely. There's something special about sitting down with a student when they're first starting and listening to their story, why they didn't finish. Perhaps a student failed out. They started college when they were supposed to. They weren't ready to go to college. They failed out. And their parents said, we're not spending money on this. Go figure it out. When you're ready, you go back. Fast forward 20 years, here they are, but they still have that fear of failure. And added onto that is, I'm not 18 or 20. I'm a grown adult in a classroom with kids who they're natives to the technology. They're native to all, they, they've been in school consistently. This has been their job. How am I ever going to do this? And I'm working full time and I have a family and you know maybe I'm doing something in the community. How am I ever going to make this work? They have, so they have doubts on so many levels. They also sometimes have family members who are telling them, you're stupid for doing that. What are you doing that for? You're not going to make that happen. You're just wasting your time and money. You're too old to do it, or you're too dumb, or what, whatever the limitation is. So they come in with these on their shoulders, and it's apparent what they're holding. And there's nothing more exciting than working through a couple courses and seeing them go, huh, yeah, I, I did this. Gathering those cookies. 
And something that I tell my students, I teach an intro course, and I tell them, I'm going to push you out on this limb. I'm going to push you out. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I want you to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. But I promise you, I will not saw that limb out from under you. I am here. So I want you to work. And again, this goes, I didn't know it at the time, but since becoming hooked on Goggins, we only work at 40% of our potential and we like comfort. They're on the other side of discomfort and hardship and suffering is success and greatness. So I want them to experience discomfort in a controlled environment, someplace that you're not going to get fired. No one's going to get hurt. You may be a little embarrassed, but that's between you and me. Nobody else is going to know about it because I know that you have more in you than you're giving yourself credit for that someone else is giving you credit for. And I just love seeing that blossoming, that confidence, the, oh, wow, I can do this. And then when they're done with their degree and they get this great job or they go on to law school to become the attorney that they always want to become, the advocate that they wanted to be, there's nothing that compares to that at all. I would imagine a lot of them have some self-doubt that they're wrestling with in this process, but you look at them and instead of all of that, you see this possibility is what it sounds like. Absolutely. How do you find that, connect to it, and then get them to connect to it and to embrace it? How do you do that? I do it by spending a lot of time with them. My office door is always open. In the COVID era, it's Zoom. But I I listen to what they're saying. I listen to what they're not saying. Listen for the, the details, the body language. I think if we pay attention, we can learn a lot more about people. But we're usually too busy looking at the shiny objects or we're too concerned with getting our point across, making sure that you understand what I'm trying to say. So we miss a whole lot. I, I look at the the details. I look at what they're writing, how they're writing, what they're saying to me in an email, how they're sitting in my office, the little things that they tell me. And sometimes I use some of my legal skills and start asking questions, talking to them the way I would a client to tease out some of that information. And I share pieces about me. If I know that they're first gen, I know exactly where you're coming from. That was me. And I can tell you this, it sucked, but I know where you are. So I'm in a position here where I can help you. So lean on me, ask me questions. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to help you focus on your dreams and your goals and help you realize those. I have students who have learning differences. Some of them have never been diagnosed. Some of them have been diagnosed, um, but they won't share that information with the university. That makes it very difficult for me because the university won't extend any of the courtesies, if you will. But I know that there's something there, and that's just from working with students with learning differences. And I, uh, while I can't give them something that the university can't give them, I can still work with them And I can change how I teach the course to make it easier for them to grab that information so they're not at a disadvantage that I can play to their strengths. 
And I think I just spend a lot of time doing what a couple of my most influential, important mentors did with me and doing what I wish more people had done with me because maybe I would have been less shy if somebody had tried to help me out of that situation. So I think I I look at what I don't like in me and want something better for them. I guess that's what my parents did. They wanted something better for me than what I had, than what they had. And for my students, I want them to have a better experience than what I had or what their family or friends or community think they're worthy of having. Now, a lot of people try not to look at the parts about them that maybe, you know, their limitations or their challenges or their downsides. But you're not only like looking at it, but then going, okay, how can I do something and apply this in this broad way? How is it that you're able to take that different approach than so many people do you think? I don't know. I guess I look at our differences that were created differently. We're inherently supposed to be different. And I think starting at that point, I'm not expecting everybody to be alike. So we're all different. You're better at some things than I am. I'm better at some things than you are. That's normal. And where I'm not strong at something, how do I get better? I get better by doing it over and over again, maybe callousing my mind a little bit and getting over being embarrassed. How do you become a better runner, a cyclist, a softball player, guitarist, whatever? You, you have to get rid of your ego and just dig in and do it. And there's so much to be learned from the process of digging in and suffering a little bit and maybe, you know, showing that I'm human, that I'm, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to go on a journey to find them with you. Do these students know that when they come to you? Do they understand? Because I'm with you. The process piece is crucial. And that's a spot where I see a lot of people don't really understand because they haven't ever been taught that. You clearly get it. Process is key. And that, yeah, we have to learn. We have to practice, learn, get better. But what about these students? Do they get that at first? Or is that something that you have to teach them? Some of them get it immediately. It's almost something they've been looking for. And I can see them relax and Sometimes the tears just come because it's like popping a blister that there's someone who gets this. There are others who are resistant to it. And those are kind of the fun ones. They're a challenge. And they may hold on to whatever their preconceived notions are of what they can and cannot do. And I just love poking and showing that, look, you did better. This is what you thought you were going to do. Look what you did. That's you know, pretty good. And there are some who never get it. And that's a very small, maybe one in a hundred who aren't interested in getting it. And they usually don't stick around. But the others, I'd say most of them get it and are appreciative of it and will tease me about it as we get closer and we go through more classes. I work more closely with them in upper level courses. So there aren't as many students and we spend a lot more time and they get to know who I am as a person. I don't want to be the professor who scares them. I want them to learn. My role is to educate them not only on the substance 
but also on the nuances, the soft skills. I want them to learn. And you can't learn if you're afraid. Because for you, this isn't about, hey, look at and recognize my status. This is about, hey, let's see what you can do here. I'm here to help you do this. And that's really the goal. I'm here to help you get back on your journey to be able to move it forward and to be able to do things that at some point you probably didn't think you could do because I know you can, and I'm going to keep pushing you and nudging you and believing in you until you do it. It's not about me. Um, It's about them. That's why I'm here is to help them get to where they need to go. That's really cool. It is pretty cool. It's a gift. Uh, you know, if beginning of my law school career, you had asked me, where do you see yourself at this point in your, your life? Never in a million years is this where I would have thought I'd be. But it's a tremendous gift to see others or to help them along their path. And you know, I don't know if I make a difference or what kind of difference I make, but it's not something I think about. I just am ecstatic when I see them graduating and they're going on to the next chapter, whatever that chapter is. I think the idea that there's any possibility you don't make a difference is a bit ridiculous, don't you? I, I hope I do. I do it for that reason, but you, you never know. I want to talk a little bit more about your daughter and about her story. And not only because she sounds like a really amazing woman, but I know that's been such an important part of your life and your journey. So we've talked about all the different work in traveling to different doctors and advocating for her and all of that. But tell me more about her journey and her story happy to. She's a great kid. And and I mean that sincerely. She's just, she's been an angel. She, I believe, was given to us for a very specific reason. I never wanted to have children. And God laughed at me. We joke about that. She and I joke about that. She's like, huh, God laughed in your face, didn't he? And my dad prayed that I would have twins because he thought, one-stop shopping, get pregnant once, have two kids. So fortunately, there was only one. My daughter was overterm, which isn't a big deal. She was a 10-pound baby. I'm not a very big woman, so that was an um, experience in and of itself. But we noticed early on, like days, that she had this big lump over her eyebrow. I'm like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Let's watch that. Maybe it's just something from birth trauma, whatever. So we kept watching that and it wasn't going away, it wasn't changing, it was just red and it was a lump. And the uh, pediatrician referred us to the local children's hospital to have it looked at. He said, I, I don't like this. So the children's ho- hospital diagnosed her with a hemangioma. And I had a hemangioma as a kid. It doesn't really look like any hemangioma that I had. And of course, me being the lawyer, had to hop online and do some research. I'm like, it doesn't look like a hemangioma, but I'm not a doctor. So they put her on a course of treatment. Nothing was changing. Nothing was happening until she's about a, not quite a year old, maybe about seven months old. All of a sudden, her eyes started to hemorrhage. So her eye closes. It looks like I punched her in the eye, turns purple, and she has lymph fluid and a little bit of blood coming out of her eye. Wow. And I'm like, oh, this is a problem. So a very dear friend of ours who we refer to as our family of choice was from California. And he had some contacts and 
one of his contacts happened to be visiting for the holidays. She happened to be a surgeon. And she looked at my daughter and said, this is not a hemangioma. This, I, I don't know what's going on, but you need to get to Boston Children's. So should go back to the person uh, at the children's hospital and get a referral. So we went back and the, the surgeon was kind of scratching his head going, gee, this should have been the, the course of treatment that we gave for the hemangioma should have taken care of it. Huh, I don't know what's wrong. So I'm going to refer you to Boston Children. So he referred us to a, a surgeon up there who was the preeminent surgeon for what we came to find out was a lymphatic malformation. Little man with a bow tie, about 70 years old, never been married, just brilliant, wonderful doctor. So we were with him for a couple of years. They did a, a resection, cut her ear to ear, pulled her face down, took it out. He put her in one of his medical journal articles, claims that she is the most perfect example of that particular surgery. He developed the surgery. So that's part one. So between the time she was diagnosed and the surgery, we would be out and about and you know, eyes, the kid's eye is swollen shut. It's purple. It looks like a popter, lymph fluid. It was wonderful. I had police officers follow me through the mall because obviously I was beating her because why else does a little child have a black eye with blood pouring out of her eye? That was a little scary. Kids would make fun of her, but she also wasn't talking. And that was problematic. And I knew something wasn't right. And people are like, oh, first child, don't worry about it. They, they talk later because they don't need to talk. They're not fighting with a sibling. And I'm like, this doesn't seem right. Turned out she had what was called apraxia amounted to low muscle tone, where she really couldn't talk. So we got a speech pathologist involved. And because she couldn't talk, when she would get frustrated, she'd start banging her head. This is before she had the surgery. So she had this big lump where her malformation was. And we had hardwood floors, lived in an antique home. So she'd start to bang and we'd be diving across the floor to get our hand because I, I didn't know what the problem with her eye was. But all I could think was there's something there. I wonder if she hits it hard enough, if it's going to rupture. This could be another problem. So phenomenal, brilliant speech pathologist. She was the praxia person on the East Coast, happened to be up in Massachusetts, close enough for us to get to. She worked with my daughter for a number of years. And then just like that, she started to talk and she's never stopped talking. So she goes to pre-K and she's not hitting any of the marks, you know, things. She's just not doing what she's supposed to be doing. I'm talking to the teacher. I'm like, what's going on? We're reading to her. We're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. Some kids just blossom a little bit later. So it came to the second year of preschool and we have the meeting. Yep, we're going to check her off to go to kindergarten. I said, no, we're not. She can't do all of these things. I'm not sending her to kindergarten. This is crazy. And the preschool teachers, oh, I've been doing this for you know, 30 years. I know what I'm talking about. She's ready. I'm like, mm, no. So we pulled her out and we put her in a Montessori program. Still having difficulties, struggling. So we got to the end of her final preschool year, goes into kindergarten in Montessori getting ready to go into first grade, and we were transitioning back to the public school. And we had an IEP when she was in preschool in the public school, so we were revisiting that. And the, we actually had a director of special ed in our town who said, 
there's something going on here. And I want to send her out for some testing. And I said, okay, good, because we were going to do it on our own because I knew something wasn't right, but all the research that I was doing, I wasn't finding that. So send her out, do tons of testing to find out that she has nonverbal learning disorder, which she was the first student in our school district to be diagnosed with that. So she's going to start first grade. All during this time, from preschool to first grade, we're also going down to D.C. for therapy with Dr. Harry Wax, who was an amazing behavioral optometrist. This guy was just brilliant. But because her eye had been closed and had been hemorrhaging for so long, the doctors in Boston were like, we don't know if she's going to have any sight. Her range of motion is diminished. But again, our family of choice had connections back in California where he had come from and had another physician friend who said, I know the person you need to see. You need to see Harry Wax. He's in DC. I'll make a phone call for you. He has a several year waiting list, but I'll make a phone call for you. So she made a phone call. We got in and we used to go down every month and Grace would work with the doctor and therapists on her eye four, five, six hours a day and hand-eye coordination because between the apraxia and the NVLD, all of her motor functions and all of that, the executive functioning wasn't quite right. So we spent years going down to DC to work with him at his facility. Fast forward and she's in school. I did not tell her that she had any sort of learning difference. Obviously, she had an IEP. She got extra help, but I struggled to even get that help because I knew having a label could be detrimental to her. But I also knew if she didn't have the label, she would never get the help that she needed. So we decided go with the label. When she did start preschool, initially she was nonverbal and the school was like, oh, that's too bad. I said, well, what do you mean that's too bad? She signs. Don't you have someone who can sign? And they said, "Eh, you know, it's, uh," I said, if she spoke a foreign language, wouldn't you have someone who could interpret for her? And they said, yeah, we might have someone to, to work with her. I said, well, she signs. That's her way of communicating. So we were fighting legal battles when she was three years old to get her services. So she signed for the first four years of her life because she couldn't speak. So as she goes through school, she doesn't know that she has NVLD. She knows that she she struggles with some things. And as I say, there's some things that you're good at, other things that I'm good at. We're not all good at everything. So here's some extra help. We get to eighth grade. And at that PPT meeting, they called the students in because they're transitioning to high school. And at that point, the student has to be involved. And I was like, oh, I forgot about this little piece. I guess I need to tell her. So I explained to her what what was going on. And she said, okay, that kind of makes sense. Some pieces started to fall together for her. It was fine. She was good with it. First two years of high school were absolute hell for her. Students picked on her. She had one teacher in particular who refused to give her any of the accommodations that she'd been provided in her IEP because my daughter didn't look 
like she needed them. What exactly is she supposed to look like? So there were some struggles within the school system. We have a very good high school, a lot of very high academic achievers and a lot of really good athletes as well. So the idea that she didn't look like she had something wrong with her. One teacher told me that, yeah, I think you're just playing the system. I think you're just trying to get something for her. A number of contentious PPT meetings, a number of contentious interactions. Because she had an IEP, teachers just passed her through. They figured she's not going to school. She's not going to go to college. No big deal. And they told me, yeah, she's not college material. She's not going to She's not gonna go to college. So I've heard this story before. A little similar. Yeah. And, and, and I interrupt, not just to make the bad joke, but also because I'm wondering what that was like for you to hear that being said about your daughter. When I was interacting with the school district, I was her attorney. Her principal initially thought I was her attorney. They didn't know that I was her mom until she called me mom one day. And he looked at me and I said, when I'm here, I'm her advocate. I'm her attorney. I'm not her mother. Thought in my mind was always, oh, hell no, you're not doing this to her she's not going to be one of these other kids where parents go, oh, okay, what you're giving her, we're we're thankful for those scraps. No, that's not the way it works. That's not what the law says. That's not my role as an advocate to say, oh, that's good enough. I would always ask for more than I wanted because I knew they weren't going to give me what I wanted. But if I asked for what I wanted, they still weren't going to give me that. I'd get less. So ask for more and you... All through high school, her first two years, uh, I had found, years earlier, I had found a school, a boarding school that is specifically for children with NVLD and Spectrum, because a lot of the learning is, is similar. While the diagnoses are different, the same therapies and the same approaches often work. And I've been trying to Get, I contacted the school and the school said, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk to anybody you want at the district. We will educate them on what would be best practices for her. Couldn't be bothered with that. Nope, nope. We know what we're doing. And I was getting more and more angry and less patient as I was seeing her struggle more and for no reason. Obviously, it was difficult for her, but it was difficult because nobody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And whether they didn't have the skill set or they just couldn't be bothered because you've got 24 other kids in the classroom and they teach to the middle, whatever, I don't know. So we finally revisited the lawyer thing and went back to the lawyer she had when she was three years old, who is a dynamic special ed attorney, and said, this is what we have. And she was able to get her into this school. We had a confidentiality agreement. The terms were sealed, but we were able to get her into that school where she just blossomed. She still struggled, but the teachers knew what to do. And there were maybe five kids in the class. And they worked on not just the academics, but the social pieces and built the students up. And she really came into herself. And the teachers at the public school, um, the administration, yeah, she's not college material. Uh, I made sure to let them know when she was accepted to college. And she has 
she's finishing her freshman year. She's doing a wonderful job. But more importantly, she is a wonderful advocate for herself. She volunteers and does work with our vets. She has worked on legislation for three years with our state senator and one of our reps for trying to create a green alert for at-risk veterans, just like we have an amber alert. It is the same type of alert, but when a veteran, a high-risk veteran or veteran at risk goes missing, that you don't have to wait 24 or 48 hours, that immediately it's like a, an amber alert because we know in most instances what happens when an at-risk vet goes missing, that they're going to take their life. Her heart is with them and is just a wonderful advocate, but she has a podcast now. She's a blogger. She um, is, as a mom, I think she's a pretty neat kid, but she has come into her own and is helping others. Her friends here at school do not know that she has any differences. She's just a college kid. I think she's done a really good job understanding who she is and what her strengths are. And she'll, she just keeps going. And to those teachers who said, yeah, she's not going to go to college. Maybe you should just look at a community college, maybe a little certificate program. She could be a, you know, an aide, nursing home aide or something. That's all she, that, that's, that was the ceiling that they were putting on her. And I think about if I had listened to them and said, oh, okay. And if I go back even further, when I was pregnant with her, I did not want some of the testing done, the Down syndrome test, because my husband and I had decided as Catholics, we will take what we get. And whatever's meant to be is meant to be. Well, the doctor, I had ordered that test behind my back. And when I went in for one of my appointments, he said, I need to counsel you and recommend an abortion. I said, excuse me? He said, there's an 8 out of 10 chance that she's going to be born with Down syndrome. These markers are lining up, and I need to tell you that I would recommend an abortion. So I think back to that, and what if I had listened to him and said, oh, okay, there's this wonderful young woman who is positively changing lives of others, and she wouldn't be here had I listened to that person. And if I'd listened to the one or two administrators who were working with her in the public school who said our professional opinion is she's not going to go, she, she won't be able to go to college. I don't know what she would be doing. But she not only has you for a, a mom and an advocate, it sounds like she's taken a few lessons from you too along the way. She's got more gumption. She's got more balls than I do. I, I watch her. She doesn't take any. She's a lovely girl. She's kind and compassionate and will help anybody. But there's a line that she's a good advocate for herself. She doesn't let anybody walk on her. And it's good to see. I'm sure it is. She sounds like such an amazing young woman. She still has her moments where I want to kill her because her room is a disaster and <laughs> she leaves dirty dishes around. There, there's still that. So she's very normal in that sense. But she's doing her thing. And I know she made me a better lawyer. She's made me a better human being. And there is a reason God put her with us. She's made you 
a better lawyer, a better human being. Tell me more about that. For most of her young life, I was convinced that I went to law school to be her advocate because I spent so many years advocating for her on so many different levels. It was always something. I have a whole filing cabinet, four-drawer filing cabinet, filled with just her files, whether they're medical, OT, speech, her eye, her PPT, IEP, all the reports and the, the testing and all of that stuff. So for probably five years, that's all I did was advocate for her trying to get her service, trying to get her to see doctors, and then following through. So those are all my advocacy skills, all of the things that I was, that I couldn't do for myself. I was, I learned in law school and through all of those years to do for her. And one of my dear friends, the one from California, always used to say, if you're not vested in her, who is? And that's a duh thing, but to hear it from somebody else, that she was the most important thing, that if, and here's my Catholic upbringing, that when I die, I have to account for my actions. And hopefully if I'm standing at the pearly gates and God says, I gave you this child, you didn't do right by her. I gave you a precious gift and you threw it away in whatever manner. I can't do that. I have to be able to say right or wrong. I believe that I made every decision in her best interest. It may not have been the best decision afterwards, but I went into this believing with all of the evidence, all the data that I have, that this is the best decision for her right now. And that's my role is to be able, when I die, to say, I did the best that I could with what you gave me. You trusted me with this child. I think it would be pretty hard for someone to critique your efforts. When I'm angry with her, you, someone might take issue with that when I want to kill her. <laughs> now, along the way here, as you have been engaged in so many different battles, this may be a little bit strong of a word, but all of these challenges in all these cases of advocating for yourself, for your daughter, for your students. I can imagine that there have been times where it might have felt overwhelming or a bit hopeless or a bit um, darker. Can you tell me a bit about how that has shown up for you and how you've dealt with that and been able to kind of find your way back to the, the light and the possibility to keep pushing forward? Absolutely. I don't think there's been a decision that I've made, whether it's you know, with a surgery or uh, some sort of therapy or school where I didn't go, am I making the right decision? And that's, again, I guess where my Catholic side comes out. And honestly, I just start praying and take a deep breath and think about what I'm doing, why am I doing it? It's like putting a case together, put all the data out there, all of the evidence, all the facts, and re-examine them. Did I miss something? This isn't perfect, but this is the best option. And honestly, pray. That's That has really been what has kept peace in me, that I can feel when I'm praying about something, there's a, a peace that comes over me that I know, okay, you're okay. It's going to be okay. And I believe that. 
So that sense of okayness, right? It's going to be okay. How does that change your like perception and experience of these challenging situations in those moments? I think it gives me more clarity because there's not confusion while the decision or the circumstance is unpleasant or difficult or you know whatever we want to call it. I know it's a small piece, it's temporary, and there's going to be a way out or the resolution. We're going to grow, we're going to learn. Maybe this bad experience here is going to pivot us toward something that's going to get us someplace better, like what happened early on. Okay, she was misdiagnosed. Okay, she got misdiagnosed. We almost went to court on it, but said, you know what, let's just get her where she needs to be. If she hadn't been misdiagnosed, we may not have gotten to Children's Boston. We may not have gotten the surgeon who developed this surgery, and she would not have had the absolute best care. And she could have been deformed because another surgeon who was pretty good at it, but not the best, operated and she would look differently. So in in those struggles, there are lessons. There's also a lot of gratitude. When we go to children, we used to go to Children's Boston and we'd sit in the surgeon's office. My daughter looked normal, except for this black eye with lymph fluid. There were kids there who were missing parts of their skull. They had horrible deformities. And I would look around and feel almost guilty being there. Because I'd look at my child and go, there's nothing wrong with her. She will live a normal life. These children, no matter how good these surgeons are, they've been impacted in ways that they will never be looked at normally. Their brain function may be normal, but their physical appearance will be off-putting to people. Or their brain function may have been impacted by whatever they have experienced. And there's nothing wrong with our child. So there was a lot of gratitude that, thank you, God, for the burdens that you've given us. I will take these over what these other people are carrying. There's nothing wrong with this kid at all. It says a lot about the power of perspective. Yeah, the glass is either half empty or half full. Or it's entirely full and it's just half air and half water. That's true. That's another way. I like that. <laughs> Like That's my little snarky rebellion moment right there. Um, <laughs> I like it. But, I like but it. But it does, in all seriousness, and, and not to overly lighten this, because this is such an important thing, right? We're talking about the power of perspective and that you can look at things in any number of different ways. And again, a lot of people, to come back to your students, might look at these folks as people who've they've failed or they've gotten off course or whatever perspective they might have. But you see it in a very different way. You see them in a very different way, right? You see possibility and you focus on that. So that perspective piece seems like such, such an important thing in being able to maintain the the strength and determination to keep moving forward in all of these journeys. And we learn from what we seem to label as failure. I, I don't learn when I've done something perfectly. I make a perfect chocolate cake. Great. I made a perfect chocolate cake. When I make baked Alaska that falls apart, I have to go back and walk through the steps to figure out where did I go wrong and what am I going to do next time to make this a good 
end result. And that's how I, when I have students sitting in my office and they say, you know, I failed 20 years ago. Okay, you failed 20 years ago. Those 20 years ago, what have you done in the 20 years? You've gone on to be married, had a career, raised three kids, da, 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 da. You've learned you're a completely different person. You have been successful in all of these areas. So you failed a philosophy class when you were 19. Why did you fail it? Oh, because I was out partying. Okay, that's why. You know why you failed the course or you didn't study. You're not just randomly failing. There was a cause for that. Are you going to go out drinking every night and not do your work? No. Okay, so let's put these things into perspective and be honest with what has occurred in the past 20 years. You've done really well. You, We all have failures. We all have to learn. But I think in those struggles is where we become better, whether it's a stronger person, stronger personality, stronger mind, or better at our craft. It was that old saying, a good sailor isn't made by calm seas. You learn what you're made of when the shit's hitting the fan. And even in an academic setting, you're not going to get hurt. No one's life is on the line. And I tell my, no one's life is on the line. So what if you mess up? So what if you don't get an A? I don't expect you to get an A on this because you're learning how to do it. And how many of you, the first time you got on a bicycle, you got on that bicycle and you started pedaling, you went down the street and they look at me and say, how many? None of you. So why is this any different? Why do we expect that we can do something for the first time and be a master of it? Get rid of that notion. You've got to learn. You're going to fall just like learning to walk. You didn't just pop up and start running across that floor. You learned whether you recognize, you didn't know that you were learning, but you figured it out that, oh, my balance isn't so good. Maybe I need to hang on to something. Whatever goes through your mind as a baby, the same thing happens, except our ego gets in the way. We're aware of our shortcomings and we're worried that people are going to make fun of us or say something. And a lot of what I do with my students is, this is between you and me. I'm not going to laugh at you. This is part of life. Embrace it, learn from it, and grow. Such an important thing. And yet a thing that so many people genuinely do struggle with for a number of different reasons. Where did you get that learning of failure is not really an issue. It's inevitable kind of, or at least falling down mistakes, problems, all of that. It's like, that's going to happen. The key is learn from it, grow from it, keep going. Where did you get that lesson from? Do you think? That's a really good question. I think probably early on, it started with athletics with my coach that when I started playing field hockey, softball, basketball, whatever, that I sucked at all of them because I didn't know I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I, I didn't had never held a field hockey stick before. I didn't know what it felt like. Um, same thing with the basketball. I, so we learned and okay, this didn't work. Oh let's try this. Maybe if I practice, I'm gonna get better. There were many years where I was really, I think it was during my shy years, where I was concerned what people would say. That was a big thing. And I realized, why do I care what anybody else thinks? If they're comparing, if they have something to say about what I'm doing, that's more of a reflection of them. It's not so much about me. I'm at least trying. And my mom used to tell me that too. You're trying. You have to try. And if you don't try, then how are you going to know? So try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, reassess, 
and try again. And if it doesn't work, reassess, try again. And I think maybe my dad being a builder, same thing that something doesn't all, you know, gee, that didn't work well. That design, the architect, the mathematical formulas worked out. But when you're standing there staring at the structure going, that didn't work. Let's go back and try it again. I guess, you know, I never really thought about that, but it's also something that I've gotten better at with age. I just don't care. And maybe I'm more comfortable with myself that, you know what, you got something to say about it. That's your issue. It's not mine. It sounds like though that you really did get some powerful and supportive models of being imperfect, being not good at things or being allowed to be you know, not good at things, having it be normalized. Like, of course, you don't know what the heck you're doing here because you've never done it before, which is super obvious when you're outside of it. But that's not always how right things go and not always the lessons people get. But it sounds like you had that and were able to internalize that and, and then run with it. I think so. And I think also I was, I grew up in a time where we didn't have YouTube, there wasn't this constant TikToks. People post videos of them doing things. And for some reason, we think that's the first take. Right. That they're doing this great trick shot with basketball that they just went out and did it. No, they've been practicing it for years. Maybe it was a fl- just, we forget that. But way back when, we didn't have that scrutiny. So I didn't have to watch myself fail on video. But you could do it quietly in in the park. But I think you raise such an important point because you're right. What we are seeing around us, our brain by default is going to treat it as like reality and truth, even though it's not even remotely close. And that can really skew one's expectations of oneself. So I, I think that's a, a very good point about one of the challenges that we face in our world today really regardless of age, although I think that might be an even stronger challenge for generations who are growing up with this stuff from the get-go. So, Regina, where are you going to direct this, I'll say, I'll call this advocacy energy of yours? What's your next mission? Do you know? Do you have another one that you're working on or what? I have a couple things that I'm working on. Whether they'll come to fruition the way I am currently envisioning them or they're going to go 190, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I don't know. Two things I'm working on. One is I have a wonderful piece of property in southern Maine that has wonderful energy. And as veterans are close to my heart, especially those who are suffering PTSD or other physical, I don't like to use the word disabilities because that is so limiting, challenges. I I have a, a shaman colleague and he has suggested that I perhaps do fire circles and see if I can help individuals heal in that holistic way. That's 180 degrees from everything that we've been talking about. That's a you know, completely different side of me, but it's a, an area of service. The other project that I'm working on is to work with law firms and paralegals and how we can better utilize the services of paralegals in the firms and how paralegals can be better advocates for themselves and serve clients and the rest of the legal team more effectively. And perhaps we can lower some legal costs and get better service to some some folks who 
may be marginalized because of a lot of different reasons. So those are two <laughs> very different. <laughs> but that's great. It's great. They are very different in one sense. But again, this theme, this common theme is absolutely there of taking people who might be underserved or neglected or not believed in and really helping them to be able to do more, be more, have support and have help. So Regina, if somebody is interested in getting in contact with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? The easiest way, I have a presence on LinkedIn. I'm Regina Graziani, ESQ. That's a a great platform. Also happy to drop my uh, work email. I'm always at work. It's my last name, Graziani, G-R-A-Z-I-A-N-I at Hartford, H-A-R-T, F-O-R-D dot E-D-U. I will put that in the show notes as well as I'll put in a link to your LinkedIn profile so folks can find you there and they can reach out. Knowing there are people out there such as you who are such strong advocates who are really helping people to be what they're capable of being. It's one of those things I think that helps all of us who sometimes feel a little bit uh, down about the world to It gives us a little bit of a sense of hope and faith to know that there's people out there like you, not to mention, I think it's just inspiring to others who have their own causes that they want to advocate for and pursue. So thanks so much for sharing your story today with us. I feel honored that you allowed me into your space to share. It means a lot. So thank you. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.